Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with alarming reports in the Washington Post and the New York Times about Trump's vengeful plans for a second term, outlining how he would invoke the Insurrection Act on day one and round up his enemies, such as the so-called adults in the room, General Kelly, William Barr, and General Milley, who he has already threatened to execute. Joining us is the first high-level official in the Trump White House to blow the whistle on Trump's incompetence, ignorance, and pettiness, Miles Taylor, a national security expert who works in Washington, D.C. He served as the chief of staff of Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, in the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in the New York Times, Blowing the Whistle on Presidential Misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealed himself to be the author and launched a campaign of ex-officials to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. He has worked as an advisor in the George W. Bush administration on Capitol Hill as a CNN contributor and is the co-founder of multiple democracy reform groups. His latest book is Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. Then we'll look further into the looming specter of American fascism with Trump, the dear leader of a group of bottom feeders who were loyal to the end as with the few adults left, along with the judges Trump appointed, held the line on democracy and tossed out the Kraken election lawsuits. Joining us is Richard Hassan, Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's a nationally recognized expert on election law and campaign finance regulation and is the co-author of a leading casebook on election law. He served as the founding co-editor of the quarterly peer-reviewed publication Election Law Journal and is the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown. His latest book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And we will discuss his latest article at Slate, Terrifying Reports About Trump's Plans for a Second Term Have One Bright Spot. Then finally, we'll examine a recent poll that has Trump ahead in five of the six swing states and speak with Seth Maskett, a professor of political science and director of the Center for American Politics at the University of Denver, who studies political parties, campaigns and elections and state legislatures. His books include Learning from Loss, The Democrats 2016 to 2020, and The Inevitable Party, Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Fails and How They Weaken Democracy. And he is currently working on a book project examining the Republican Party's interpretations of the 2020 election and its preparations for 2024. We will discuss his op-ed at the Los Angeles Times, Biden is losing to Trump in a new poll. Does that pass the smell test? And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Miles Taylor, a national security expert who works in Washington, D.C. He served as the chief of staff to Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security during the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in the New York Times, Blowing the Whistle on Presidential Misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealing himself to be the author and launched a campaign of ex-officials to oppose Trump's re-election. He's worked as an advisor in the George W. Bush administration on Capitol Hill as a CNN contributor and is the co-founder of multiple democracy reform groups. And his latest book is Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Miles Taylor. Ian, it's terrific to be with you as always. Well, thanks for joining us, Miles. And this uh, recent article in the Washington Post on Sunday, and there was a similar article in the New York Times, Trump and his allies plot revenge, Justice Department control in a second term, it is alarming and it has a lot of people alarmed. 
And apparently uh, the plan for Trump's, if he's inaugurated on day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and then have martial law and round up his opponents. And on top of the list, of course, are people that you worked with, John Kelly, the former chief of staff, uh, Attorney General William Barr, his ex-attorney Ty Cobb, and the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, who Trump has already s- says he wants to execute. So are you on the hit list? Well, Ian, I, I will say that the very first thing that Donald Trump did after I spoke out against him was tweet out a seven-letter response in all caps. Treason? Question mark. Now, anyone who knows anything about history knows that treason is punishable under law by death. So, you know, the president of the United States uh, effectively said I should be charged with uh, an offense punishable by death for exercising my First Amendment rights. That's who we're dealing with here. And, you know, some folks have reacted to the Washington Post story and said that it's fear-mongering. But I've got to say, it's anything but. In fact, I think that the picture that the Washington Post paints with this story is a hyper-realistic picture. And it's something that I've been talking about the past few months after interviewing a range of different Trump aides and other people who served alongside me in the Trump administration. I spoke to everyone from the cabinet level all the way down to the staffers that sat at the desk just outside the Oval Office to ask them one question. What will Donald Trump do in a second term? And overwhelmingly, the through line of that story, the common denominator in all of these answers was the weaponization of the levers of power. Again and again and again, people who had worked with Trump, people who know Trump well, people who'd served in the administration previously said that in the next go around, that is going to be his primary focus. He wants to use those levers of power to exact revenge against his adversaries. This would sound like the type of thing that would be a civic horror story or a B-movie if folks were just spouting off and saying that. But if they don't trust the officials who've worked with Trump, they don't have to. They can just listen to Trump himself, who has been out there now the past few months broadcasting this quite openly. And Ian, I think the mistake that people have made time and time again with Donald Trump is they don't take him seriously. They don't take his word seriously. They assume that when he says bellicose things like he's going to prosecute his rivals or he's going to root out the deep stake, that it's a figure of speech and that his real policies and reality won't be nearly as disastrous. That has proven to be false. We witnessed that firsthand as a country over the course of four years with Donald Trump, and we need to take him seriously this time around as he talks about using these institutions of the justice system, like the FBI, like the US Department of Justice and special prosecutors against his rivals. It's what Donald Trump wants to do, but this time he's taking the steps in a really conscious way to make sure it's successful. They are lining up lists of people who know who they know will execute these plans. They are putting the wheels in motion to be able to drop these executive orders in what one aide told me was a shock and awe blitz on day one of a second term. And they wanna make sure they do these things in a way that it's bubble wrapped in legalese so that if the courts oppose it, They can fight it all the way to the Supreme Court and get some of these measures approved. So it's a pretty volatile situation that we're looking at and one that genuinely, I believe, could be fatal to our democracy as we know it if we allow it to happen. And I take it you're talking about Project 2025, uh, which is housed at the Heritage Foundation and funded, I think, by about $25 million. So this is not theory, right? There are practical plans underway. Well, and it, it's not theory because you've got these think tanks in Washington who are doing this. And for, for people who aren't familiar with that, this is pretty much tradition in Washington, D.C., that the party who's out of power that's not in the White House, typically their people go work at the think tanks that are aligned with that party and that ideology. And they're kind of a White House in waiting. And they'll put together lists of officials that they want to come into the administration with them next time. Now, there was a hope that at the end of the Trump administration, those conservative institutions in Washington 
would not be filled with Trumpers, that they would be filled with sort of moderate Bush Republicans again, who would plan for the next Republican to uh, be a pendulum swing back towards the center away from Trump. That's not what happened. In fact, a lot of these conservative think tanks are now dominated by MAGA types and pro-Trump types. And the former president has also blessed the creation of a think tank that's filled with more than 100 of his ex-officials, the America First Policy Institute, which is one of the groups actively developing these plans for a second term. So there is a very systematic network in place to make this happen. And you have to contrast that with when Donald Trump first went into the White House in early 2017, is they didn't expect to win. And so I knew people on the transition team who said there were no plans in place. They just simply were not prepared to take the White House because they didn't think they would win the election. This time will be very different. It won't take Donald Trump four years to figure out what his powers are and how to abuse them. He already knows that. And so day one, they're going to be ready for, again, that, quote, shock and awe blitz. So it's a very systematic effort. Uh, and it's something that will touch every single department and agency from the moment Donald Trump is back in the White House, if that's what American voters end up doing. And Miles Taylor, you've been in the Oval Office with Trump and you've witnessed his ignorance, incompetence and pettiness. And he is obviously a weak, strong man, an extraordinary narcissist, but an insecure narcissist, which sounds like a paradox. And the fact that he turned up at this trial in New York, which he didn't have to show up at except for the testimony on Monday, what was at stake there was the entire edifice of this manufactured brilliant businessman that NBC's The Apprentice helped mythologize. And without getting into amateur psychiatrics, it's obvious that Trump can't deal with the idea that this edifice this phony, fake edifice uh, and fraudulent edifice that he's created is crumbling in the face of the law. And that, I think, is terrifying him. But I think equally what's motivating him to form this plan, Project 2025, is that he doesn't want people like you and General Kelly and Bill Barr and others who know what, it's, what he's really like and have seen him operate going public and exploding the other myth. In other words, the myth of the businessman is starting to fray because of the, the New York case, and the myth of the politician is also at stake. If you and the people that you're trying to organize are able to somehow break through the noise in this election year and let the American people know who this guy really is. Well, Ian, I would say that there's two words that really help understand Donald Trump's mindset right now. One is the word loser, and the other is the word victim. There is nothing Donald Trump fears more in the world than being seen as a loser. And I know this firsthand, and I mean it very, very seriously, because when it came to any public policy issue where you had to convince Donald Trump to do the right thing, the most effective way to convince him was to show him that if he did the wrong thing, he would be seen as a loser. And that the policy that you know aides around him felt like was the smartest policy for the country, you know, would be the one that made him look like a winner. Those are the terms in which you had to speak to Donald Trump in terms of winning and losing. Those were the terms he understood. So let me give you an example before I get to victim, is when we were trying to persuade Trump to not pull out precipitously from Afghanistan. He wanted to pull out overnight, which we were worried would put U.S. troops in danger. It would put Afghans in danger. Uh, we had to convince Trump that if he pulled out right away, the terrorists would see him as a loser. And you know what? That's what worked. That's what convinced him. Not that U.S. troops might die, not that civilians might be killed, not that the country where we've invested so much might be thrust into turmoil, Trump was convinced because he didn't want the terrorists to say he was a loser. And those are the terms you had to speak to him. In. So why do I say that in relation to the cases he's facing right now? Well, Donald Trump so fears looking like a loser because he knows that the, the deck is stacked against him in a lot of these cases, that he is pivoting and he's trying to portray himself as the victim. That's why you have seen Donald Trump spin up this narrative that went from a fringe narrative that the U.S. Justice Department is somehow conspiring uh, against him and that Joe Biden is leading these prosecutions go from a conspiracy theory 
to a mainstream talking point in the Republican Party because Donald Trump has promoted that notion so heavily so that he looks like a victim of the U.S. justice system and not a loser in that justice system. Now, of course, that one man's personal grievance and lie has now blown up into something that has enormous civic impact and trust in the U.S. justice system has plummeted. That's really alarming for our country is that we are seeing this guy's petty impulses once again affect the fabric of our republic. And I worry if he gets elected, it will be an order of magnitude worse. But clearly what gets under his skin in terms of the case before the New York Attorney General, which he's already lost, but and the fact that he showed up when he didn't have to, is that he's facing for the first time the reality that his whole business life is a myth and that he wasn't a billionaire and he had to lie and cheat and inflate his assets in order to puff up this fiction. Isn't it also true in terms of his political life? And you, and you are among the few witnesses who've seen the truth about how out of his depth and how incompetent he was. And I imagine that frightened little person inside him is terrified that that will be made public somehow or other, or that will get traction. So tell us about the work that you're doing in that regard, because my sense is I don't see the Democrats being in a great shape, particularly if you look at the New York Times poll that just came out, and probably the most effective way to peel off some independents and disaffected Republicans is for them to realize what a catastrophe this man was and is as a politician and as a potential leader. Yeah, well, I mean, look, first to Trump's mindset, anyone who portrays themselves as a very stable genius is more likely than not to be the exact opposite of that. And that certainly was my experience with Trump. I mean, we were with him in the Oval Office and the White House Situation Room and Air Force One in the biggest moments of consequence during his presidency. And in those moments, I saw a man who was ill-informed, reckless, angry, confused, uh, and, and oftentimes whose inclination was towards immoral behavior, unethical behavior, or illegal behavior. Uh, you know, in those times when you really want a president of the United States to be sober-minded and put the American interest first, Donald Trump would be closed-minded and putting his own interests first all the time. It was terrifying to watch in person. And, and, and genuinely, I think we are lucky as a country to have had democracy survive that presidency in any recognizable form. And a lot of that was because of people who stepped in as guardrails to keep Trump from doing things that were illegal and unconstitutional, like we saw at the very end, you know, preventing him from holding on to power beyond what the Constitution stipulates. Uh, those people won't be around in a second term. And that gets to the second part of your question. What can be done? Donald Trump, like you said, more than anything, fears his real self being exposed. It's happening in real time on the national stage as people get to see what a crook of a businessman he was, what a liar he's been about his finances. And he fears that in his reelection that the people who've worked uh, with him will continue to express his incompetence and to spell it out for the American people. So look, one of the things that I'm trying to do and I'm hoping will be successful is getting more and more and more of these people who've worked with Donald Trump to come forward. Now, I don't expect those people to be able to persuade the MAGA masses to turn against Donald Trump. That's not reality. But what folks who've worked around Donald Trump who speak the truth can do is they can provide air cover for those concerned conservatives and other Republicans who maybe are wary about Trump to vote for the other side, to not vote at all, or look, you know, write in the name of their aunt or uncle on the ballot when they go vote. But they can help peel off those folks who are just looking for an excuse or a talking point to use with their friends and family members in MAGA circles about why they're not standing behind Trump anymore. And that's the ability to say, look, there's other people in the tribe, in the Republican tribe, who say he's pretty dangerous, so I'm not going to stick with him this time. I think that can have a decisive electoral impact. I think it did in 2020. I think enough people coming forward and defecting from Donald Trump's realm 
helped convince Republicans in key swing states to vote for a Democrat for the very first time in their lives, to vote for Joe Biden. I think that ended up helping to decide the 2020 election. And by all accounts, this is going to be an extremely tight race if it's Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And I do worry that Trump has the momentum at the moment. If the election was held today, I think that Donald Trump could eke it out and win the presidency again. So that means every vote is going to matter. And those crucial swing votes of disaffected Republicans and independents will be more crucial than they have ever been in the modern age. So, you know, look, my message would be, you know, folks who've not just worked with Donald Trump, but people who have become disillusioned with the MAGA tribe in general should know that there are people with open arms willing to have a new political home for them, encourage them to come forward, support them in you know their testimonials about how corrupt this movement has been. That, I think, at the end of the day, is going to be the only thing that prevents us from getting a Trump 2.0. Because even in the worst case scenario for Donald Trump, from a justice perspective, he could still potentially be in jail, running for president of the United States, and God forbid, win as a convicted criminal. But I would think, Miles, that these uh, reports in the New York Times and the Washington Post would propel the people that may be reluctant, uh, like General Mattis, for example, to go public and to join forces with this, with uh, General Kelly, who's already made some very important statements and revealed a, a lot about what a catastrophe Trump was, particularly in terms of his contempt for veterans and uh, and wounded veterans, and of course Bill Barr and General Milley up to a point, I would think that these recent revelations about Project 2025 would be a real motivator because basically if you and General Kelly and Milley and others don't (laughs) move fast, you're going to be in jail because you're on the top of the hit list. I I think that's right. I mean, you know, ex-Trump officials joke darkly about how, you know, we'll be in in orange jumpsuits in Guantanamo Bay if he wins a second term. And, you know, those are half jokes because Donald Trump actually did want to send civilians into Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, the terrorist prison where the 9-11 mastermind is housed. And he has talked about jailing his political opponents. So this isn't the realm of political horror story. It's a political reality. And uh, I think those folks do need to get out there. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Ian. I mean, one of the frustrations has been, you know, even people who've spoken out, a lot of them have gone back into the dark is they've been so rocked by the political intimidation and violence in this country that they're scared to continue speaking out. And so we've got to make it easier for folks to come forward. And look, you know, if there's someone listening to this right now that wants to you know, help go put an ad campaign on the air with some of these folks. I'm all ears. You know, folks can can reach out. But I you know, that's what we need to be able to go to other ex-Trump officials with to say, look, there is a platform here. We are going to get your message out there nationwide and we're going to blast it into those swing states where it's most important for people to understand who Donald Trump truly is. That needs to happen. And like you said, it needs to happen with speed or we are going to zombie walk back into this situation that imperils the entire American experiment. And and how do these people contact you? I mean, what's the organization that they should knock on the door of? Well, look, I mean, you know, right now, if folks want to hop on X, formerly known as Twitter, and just send me a direct message. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm open to, uh, you know, folks who want to get involved in the fight and find ways to do this and amplify the message. Uh, you know, at the moment, I'm not running a political organization to do this, but there's a lot of different organizations I feel like could helm this kind of an effort. And, uh, you know, there are good folks on the pro-democracy side who I think want to participate, who may not be uh, Republicans, may have never been Republicans, but are Democrats who want to welcome dissident Republicans in with open arms. So, you know, I hope that uh, we can make that happen again this cycle. It, It certainly worked in 2020, and I think it's one of our last best hopes in 2024. Well, I thank you for joining us, uh, Miles, and for the work that you're doing. It is extraordinary to have this conversation with you as, as an eyewitness to who Trump really is. And in the context of a poll that just came out from the New York Times and Siena that has Trump 
ahead in five or six of the key swing states. So I often wonder what planet I'm on when, <laughs> when, you, when you know the reality of who this guy is and yet so many people in this country support him. And if there's any magic wand to prick that bubble... I'm all for it, and it's. I think it's. Uh, it's probably the most important work that could be done. So thank you. Well, I, I appreciate it, Ian. Thank you, and uh, you know, I hope in the coming months to have better news to report in terms of folks forming a coalition, getting together, uh, and really working to take this guy down. And again, I've been speaking with Miles Taylor, who is a national security expert who works in Washington, D.C. He served as the chief of staff for Kirsten Nielsen, the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security in the Trump administration, where he published an anonymous essay in The New York Times blowing the whistle on presidential misconduct. He later published the number one national bestseller, A Warning, revealed himself to be the author and launched a campaign of ex-officials to oppose Donald Trump's re-election. He's worked as an advisor in the George W. Bush administration on Capitol Hill as a CNN contributor and is the co-founder of multiple democracy reform groups. And his latest book is Blowback, A Warning to Save Democracy from the Next Trump. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking further into the looming specter of American fascism with Trump, the dear leader of a group of bottom feeders who were loyal to the end as the few adults left, along with the judges Trump appointed, held the line on democracy and tossed out the Kraken election lawsuits. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming to the USA. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Hassan, who's a professor of law and political science at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's a nationally recognized expert on election law and campaign finance regulation, and is the co-author of a leading casebook on election law. He serves as a founding co-editor of the quarterly peer-reviewed publication, Election Law Journal, and is the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, the Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown. His latest book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And his latest article at Slate is Terrifying Reports About Trump's Plan for a Second Term Have One Bright Spot. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Hassan. Good to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Rick. And proceeding you on today's program, we had Miles Taylor, who was a high-ranking official inside the Trump White House, the first to break ranks and publish an op-ed in the New York Times under the name of Anonymous. And he is organizing the former adults in the room, like General Kelly and others, to warn the American public about what a catastrophe Trump was and is from the point of view of those who actually spent time with him up close and personal. So... Turning to the alarming articles in, in Sunday's Washington Post and also in the New York Times about what Trump's plans are for Project 2025, there's nothing scarier than what they plan to do. But you've written an article, obviously it's late, saying as terrifying as these things are, Trump's plans for a second term have one bright spot. So what would that be? Well, I think we should start with the cloud because, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to sugarcoat things or minimize the risks of a lawless second Trump term. Uh, the idea that the Department of Justice would be mobilized to go after Trump's enemies as a kind of, um, uh, you know, personal to, to put through his personal vendettas is extremely frightening. And the fact that we're even talking about this, and this is a candidate who's leading in the polls, should have everyone quite worried. Uh, so uh, th this is a, a scary time and uh, alarm bells should be ringing. Uh, but I did see in the Times reporting over the weekend a bit of a silver lining, which is that the Federalist Society, which is the Society of Conservative and Libertarian Lawyers that very much made a devil's bargain with Trump in the first term, um, the Trump world seems to be thinking they're insufficiently loyalist and would not be inviting many of them back for a second Trump term. And that's 
to me a little bit of good news because it means that the rule of law could well hold because many of those judges and 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 elite lawyers uh, who are not um, Democrats or are not on the left are members of the Federalist Society and they're going to potentially hold the line the next time around. Well, the key person, as you mentioned in your article, and I've been covering him for the last decade, is Leonard Leo, who apparently Trump called repeatedly to enlist him in his election denial campaign of Stop the Steal. He may, though, change his mind if Trump gets a second term right. He may want to come back and provide him with a list of of judges for both the federal bench and for the Supreme Court, assuming somebody like Clarence Thomas retires. Oh, for sure. So uh, I'm not going to put my faith in Leonard Leo. I think he's done a lot of damage to American democracy and and will continue to do so. Um, Although it was notable to me in in the Times reporting that Leo wouldn't take Trump's calls in that last period just before January 6th, when the the legal options had essentially run out and Trump was trying a self-coup. So, um, you know, what would it mean if Leo came back? There are other Leonard Leo may be the the organizer and the intellectual leader of the Federalist Society, but he he does not control what every person who's conservative or considers himself a member of the Federalist Society would do. And so I give some examples in the article uh, of Federalist Society um, veterans who pushed back against Trump. You know, we know there was a lot of pushback in the White House itself you know, t- from the White House counsel's office saying, no, Mr. President, you can't do that. Uh, We know that there were judges, quite conservative judges, who pushed back. And, uh, of course, the most important pushback came when Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas, filed this crazy lawsuit trying to get the electoral college votes thrown out from four states on, you know, really spurious grounds. And it got no traction at the Supreme Court. Now, of course, it shouldn't get any traction because it was a terrible lawsuit, but it didn't, the fact that it didn't get any traction shows that there is a line and that not everyone is willing to cross it. So, uh, you know, the, this doesn't depend on Leonard Leo necessarily doing the right thing, but enough people in the legal system in positions of power uh, to do the right thing. But the lawsuit by Ken Paxton, who himself has been under indictment for some time for securities fraud, that, was, that was picked up by none other than the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Yes, that's right. So Johnson filed a um, friend of the court brief. He organized the filing of friend of the court brief to support this crazy lawsuit. Now, if if I'm going to stay uh, optimistic uh, for a moment, one could see that these House members signing on to that brief, as deplorable as that was, one could see that as a kind of form of cheap speech. Uh, it was very easy to do that when you knew it was not going to make a difference. And in fact, if you look at the people who said, you know, that, that the election was stolen and and Trump should, uh, you know, be declared president somehow again in 2020, uh, those are people who didn't have the power to do that. And when it came to the Republican governors and Republican secretaries of state, those who actually could have done something to muck up the works, they didn't do it. Uh, now, I have a big question about what happens if Mike Johnson is uh, the Speaker of the House January 6, 2025, and whether he would do the right thing. I don't think we have a track record with him. But we did have enough people in power, um, Mitch McConnell even. I mean, these are not people I would ordinarily look to as election heroes. Uh, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia. Uh, you know, they've, they've done a lot of controversial, what I would consider anti-voter things over the years. But they held the line on actually stealing the election. And so that's the hope that next time it's going to happen. And also, just putting aside like stealing the election, just like the general things that Trump might try and do, like a a new Muslim ban or something like that. If you don't get the really elite lawyers working on it, you end up getting lawyers who file arguments that are not all that persuasive. And then, you know, they lose in the courts. So uh, it's going to be hard if you don't have the support of the elite lawyers on the right to be able to get your legislative agenda in place. But Rick, you just mentioned a soft coup. 
My understanding, though, is from what we've learned from both the New York Times and the Washington Post about Project 20, 2025 and the group of people at the Heritage Foundation that are working on it and and people from Trump's first term, like Stephen Miller and others who are a part of this team, and, of course, the, the lawyer that Jeffrey Clark, who wanted to become Attorney General at the very end there, being an obscure official in the environmental division of the DOJ, they're all in the mix there. But my understanding is that on day one, if Trump is inaugurated again, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and go ahead and start rounding up these people. And the Insurrection Act is a law last updated in 1871. Right. And so then there's going to be a legal process. If that, you know, if that horrible thing happens, it'd be terrible. Uh, but there's going to be someone's going to be filing uh, habeas corpus motions. They're going to be arguing the president has exceeded his authority. And it's going to be up to the judicial system and the military to hold the line. That's really what it's going to come down to. I'm that I am not. <laughs> this is not a good news story that I uh, that I wrote. It, it's just that there's going to be somewhat more resistance than I think people are uh, expecting. But will the troops be in the streets following I, Trump's orders? Or I, Yeah, I am, I am not an expert on civil-military relations. I am not an expert on, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the movement to authoritarianism in other countries. Uh, I certainly hope that it's not going to be part of what uh, this country is going to be going through. But, you know, these are real dangers. But to the extent that the legal system holds, it's not just going to be liberals that are going to be resisting this. That, that is, I think, the point I'm trying to make. Well, yeah, yeah, you haven't even mentioned Judge Ludic, right? Sure. And, you know, Judge Ludic has come out so forcefully that I think even though he's quite conservative, you know, some people have written him off because he is so anti-Trump. So, you know, it is just a, um, uh, you know, anybody who speaks out against Trump loses their credibility among the, tr- the Trumpian right. I mean, that really is uh, the definition of a cult of personality, that it doesn't matter what you believe in terms of, you know, the size of government or, you know, issues of taxes or immigration or a- environment. It's do you have fealty to one person? You know, that that is not what a true conservative is or a true liberal. I mean, that is the mark of authoritarianism. So then just in the last couple of minutes then, Rick, given the polls that came out from New York Times and Siena indicating that Trump would win five of six of the uh, key swing states, making it pretty clear that if the election was held today, he'd, he would become president again. If indeed this plan goes ahead of Project 2025 and on day one after he's inaugurated, Trump will invoke the Insurrection Act and and will have, in effect, martial law in this country. The historical examples of that are so clear, and I know people make analogies with the Nazis, but it's inescapable, isn't it? We saw that happen in Germany in the late 30s, or in the mid-30s. So, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of pushback. The election is about a year from now. There's going to be a lot of discussion of this issue. Uh, And so the American people are going to go in, I think, with their eyes a little wider open than they are right now over what these risks are. Um, And, you know, I think between the the Trump election, uh, between the, I should should say, between between the, the Trump years of 2016, 2020, the Trump presidency and COVID, I think a lot of people have gotten amnesia as to what we were going through as a country during that period. And I think there's going to be a lot of reminding people of what that is and what the dangers are that uh, we may face as a country uh, in a uh, a year or so down the road. Well, Richard Hassan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Hassan, who's a professor of law and political science at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and is the co-author of a leading casebook on election law. He served as a founding co-editor of the quarterly peer-reviewed publication Election Law Journal and is the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions and Election Meltdown. And his latest book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. 
And his latest article at Slate is Terrifying reports about Trump's plans for a second term have one bright spot. We can take a brief station break and back examining a recent poll by the New York Times that has Trump ahead in five of the six swing states. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. You can call him at home. Better get out of my side, boys. Tell you I'm a busy man. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. And he'll do what he can. Now folks got fears that they want the law to set right. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Seth Maskett, who is a professor of political science and the director of the Center on American Politics at the University of Denver, who studies political parties, campaigns, and elections in state legislatures. His books include Learning from Loss, The Democrats, 2016 to 2020, and The Inevitable Party, Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Fail and How They Weaken Democracy. And he's currently working on a book project examining the Republican Party's interpretations of the 2020 elections and its preparation for 2024. And he has an op-ed at the Los Angeles Times, Biden is losing to Trump in a new poll. Does that pass the smell test? Welcome to Background Briefing, Seth Maskett. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you. And of course, the new New York Times and Siena poll has, I think, freaked out a lot of Democrats for obvious reasons, uh, has Trump ahead in five of the six swing states. Biden, even though he was about 8 million ahead in the popular vote in 2020, he was only won by, what, 44,000 or so in the, in those swing states. But you, you're a little skeptical, right? Why so? Well, I mean, I think they're, it, it's, a, it's a serious poll, and New York Times, Siena, they do good polling. Um, it's a, you know, they got a lot of people in it. There's more than 3,000 people they spoke to. Um, you know, so I don't, you know, necessarily have anything specifically against this polling organization. Um, but one of the things that sort of struck me, uh, you know, if you, if you see some of the breakdowns in the polls is that they have some suggestions for how different subgroups of the electorate are going to vote. They have uh, an estimate that black Americans will, uh, it's something like 22% of black Americans will vote for Donald Trump. That's, that's a very large number for a Republican presidential candidate. I mean, we haven't seen anything like that in you know, more than half a century. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it seems pretty unlikely. He got about 12% last time he ran. Um, it has voters under 30 basically split between Trump and Biden, and we know that to be one of the most uh, democratic leaning portions of the population. So, um, you know, it, it, I'm not sure what would cause results like that. It may just be that, you know, there were that Republican leaning uh, voters were just more interested in responding to it right now or just more unified behind a candidate than Democrats are. But I, I found that just sort of a, uh, a strange set of findings in there. And how much do you, th- well, what was the time frame for this uh, poll? Was it very recent? It was very recent. It's just within the last week or two. So then it's factoring in the reaction to the Israeli war in Gaza, right? Uh, yes, that's certainly a part of it. And uh, that is something that, at least for now, is splitting the Democratic side, where you have you know portions of the, the Democratic population very strongly in support of Israel, other portions very critical of Israel. Um, and, you know, Biden is trying to sort of navigate a way through all that, whereas uh, Republicans are much more united in, well, simply just, you know, opposing Biden. So Biden's getting punished for being the president, right? <laughs> the president has to make hard calls. Um, yes, this is something we see, um, you know, particularly in a poll that's that's this far out from the election where, you know, Democrats are very much in the mode of, you know, dealing with the dirty business of governing and, you know, Biden having to make a lot of the difficult calls that will at least for a while split his coalition. Uh, his his party is really not that involved in the day to day of a presidential campaign just yet, whereas the Trump team certainly is. Um, they're not doing any real governing at the moment. They are simply focused on criticizing Biden and defending their candidate, Donald Trump. 
Um, and so, you know, Republicans just uh, in, in some ways are just much more united at this point. I don't. Um, so this doesn't necessarily re reflect what the electorate will look like, you know, in 10, 11 months where you'll have uh, much, you know, uh, pretty much the whole country thinking in campaign mode. Well, it could also change in a couple of weeks if the if the Republicans shut down the government. That could change, too, and that could have some effects, too. Those uh, we've seen government shutdowns several times in the past few decades, uh, generally orchestrated by Republicans in Congress, and they usually end up hurting Republicans in the polls. So that could be something that galvanizes Democrats to think as one um, and hurts the Republican Party. We might see these sorts of polls shifting um, in response to something like that. So what's the role then of the third party candidates, Kennedy, RFK Jr., Cornell West, and no labels? How concerned should the Democrats be about those candidates? Um, they, they should be concerned. And honestly, I think the Republicans should too. Uh, it is difficult to know how, what just what sort of an effect a third party candidate will have. I think in some ways, um, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is one of the more interesting and difficult to forecast candidates in there. He's not likely to do that well. Like, I, I'll honestly be surprised if he does better than like one or two percent of the vote. But the question is, where does that one or two percent of the vote comes from? Come from? Um, he is, you know, the, the Kennedys are just historically associated with the Democratic Party. He is long standing, a longstanding Democrat. On the other hand, he is far more popular among Republicans than he is among Democrats right now. Um, so if someone is bothered by Donald Trump, do they turn to Kennedy? I, I honestly don't know. And, you know, we might see a few of these swing states in Georgia or uh, Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or something like that, where it really just comes down to a few tens of thousands of voters um, and uh, which party bleeds more vo more voters to uh, someone like RFK Jr. could make all the difference, but it's really hard to know right now just where, you know, what sort of an effect that would look like. Well, it doesn't take too many uh, independent voters, uh, third-party voters, to swing the election, as we've seen that uh, with Trump in 2016, uh, Jill Stein and the Libertarian candidate clearly took enough votes away from Hillary Clinton and well, certainly in case of Jill Stein, took enough votes away from Hillary Clinton in those key swing states to have cost her the elections. Not that she wasn't a particularly good candidate and there are other factors as well, like James Comey, etc. So when I mentioned earlier how these swing states are the key because we have the most ridiculous system in, on the planet in terms of democracies where the person who wins the most vote doesn't necessarily win because of the Electoral College. And the Electoral College results lately have been such that so many candidates have uh, lost the popular vote but won the presidency. So is that what you're looking at? And that's what this new Times Siena poll is looking at, right? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's still a pretty realistic possibility. I mean, you know, we've had that occur in the past where you have one one candidate win the popular vote and the other candidate win the White House, thanks to the Electoral College. That was considered a pretty, you know, a rare event. Um, but, you know, in the elections since 2000, presidential elections have tended to be very close. Um, you know, it's, it's rare that the winner gets more than like a three or four point advantage in the popular vote. Right now, just the way that votes are distributed in the country, Republicans have a slight advantage in the Electoral College. Um, just Democrats have more, what you might call wasted votes in states like California and New York. Um, and so, you know, Republicans don't need to necessarily win the popular vote in order to win the Electoral College and, and then the presidency. So they've been able to do so, you know, twice since 2000. Um, that could happen again. I, I, I don't think there are very many people who think uh, Donald Trump would win the popular vote against uh, Joe Biden next year. That's pretty unlikely. Um, but he's got a reasonable chance of winning the Electoral College, just thanks to the way um, that, uh, you know, that, that voters are distributed in the country right now. And yes, that will all come down to, you know, pretty much just these six states that The New York Times was singling out in this poll. That the, These are the ones that are likely to be closest and in which it doesn't take too many votes to make a difference and where 
one or more of these third party candidates could really tip things one direction or the other. Well, it's the one that's the most problematic, it would seem. And in fact, Nancy Pelosi mentioned this just recently, that she was really worried about no labels. They're on, what, over 12 ballots now? I in think 12 that's states. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And key swing states at that, right? Yeah. And there, that is an unusual organization, and it's difficult to figure out exactly what their agenda is. Um, there are definitely some uh, conservative donors who are backing them in a number of cases, um, seeing them as a way to help split the Democratic vote. Um, they, you know, I guess it sort of comes down to who their candidates would be, and we don't really know that yet. But at least in theory, the idea is that uh, Democratic voters are more likely to split from Joe Biden than Republican voters are to split from Donald Trump. Um, and at least according to these latest polls, you know, there, there, there's some evidence to back that up. And so if there's uh, this, this, you know, very centrist appearing no labels ticket on the ballot there um, with two, you know, fairly bland centrists uh, on that, it's possible that a few uh, Democratic voters who are bothered by um, what they see as some of Joe Biden's problems end up departing for that ticket. And uh, that could end up, you know, affecting the election outcomes. Now, no labels will say that, you know, they're they're not in this to do that. They don't want to throw the election in one direction or another. Um, but that's very much what they could do uh, in this situation. Well, they've got Joe Manchin uh, and Kirsten Sinema on board. That makes me very suspicious. Joe Lieberman is uh, one of the founders of it. And, of course, the real person behind this is Mark Penn, whose wife, Nancy Jacobson, is, is the sort of fronting for uh, as the co-chair of No Labels. But Mark Penn, of course, is a, a fixture on Fox and somebody that has always sabotaged the Democrats. So I'm extremely suspicious of uh, No Labels. I think it's pretty clearly an operation meant to hurt Biden and help Trump. I think that's accurate. I think it's, uh, you know, the, the, certainly the motivation of a lot of people involved. I think it's it's a little hard to know just what effect they would have, but I think they're probably more likely to hurt Biden and the Democrats than they are Trump and the Republicans. Um, and again, it, it doesn't have to have that big an effect. It doesn't have to draw that many voters um, in order for it to have a pretty substantial effect on the Electoral College and on who actually becomes president in 2025. So, Seth, let's talk about the mystery here of why, why a president who's done it remarkably well with a dealt a pretty bad hand in terms of a very slim majority in the Senate and in the House, and now he's lost the House, yet he's achieved a lot, yet the public don't see it and they don't feel. I mean, the other day I was quoting James Carville, it's the economy, stupid, and by that measure... Biden should be way ahead in the polls. And I got some notes from angry listeners saying, well, you know, you're not, I don't know what kind of economic situation you're in, but we're not in a great economic situation. And they mentioned COVID, et cetera, having depressed the economy. Yet the indicators are that he should be, you know, he should be doing incredibly well. So what is really going on? Why are the Democrats and independents dissatisfied with Biden in spite of the economic data? This is really a, a very important issue and something of a, of a big mystery. I, I think it's, it's beyond just Biden. I think this, this tells us a good deal about just how public opinion is working these days. Um, and that really, if, you know, Biden, Trump, and even Obama for a lot of his presidency before him, um, uh, None of them were terribly popular for most of their presidencies. Um, most of these folks had approval ratings around, you know, in the, in the mid to low 40s, um, whereas approval ratings used to vary a lot more back in the 20th century. And, you know, they would they would rise a lot when the economy was good and drop a lot when the economy was bad or when other things were occurring, um, particularly with, you know, Trump and Biden. We've seen their approval ratings just barely have budged at all. Um, and, you know, you could say, well, it has something to do with the times, but it also, I think, has a lot to do with just um, how polarized the country is. 
um, that, uh, you know, people are very good at rationalizing, you know, uh, th their own side at coming up with reasons to oppose the other side. Um, and there just aren't that many voters to swing back and forth between the two parties. But it's really been it's been particularly striking in, in Biden's case where we've had, you know, by all sort of hard economic measures, a, a pretty strong recovery economically since COVID. Um, inflation was high for a while last year. It is now not. It's now, you know, much more uh, in, in historical norms. Um, but I did get into this a bit in my LA Times piece. Um, there was an analysis done by The Economist a couple of weeks ago in which they noticed this like surprising disconnect between how the economy is actually doing and how people think the economy is doing. And, you know, there, we, we can come up with all sorts of reasons for this, but like pretty much historically, uh, if you ask people in surveys how they think the economy is doing, they come pretty close to the hard economic data in terms of like unemployment and economic growth and everything else. Just, you know, since like 1980 or so, public perceptions have followed the hard data very closely until 2020, basically. Um, and in that time since, um, the economy has actually recovered pretty strongly. Um, unemployment remains at historic lows. Uh, economic growth is high. Um, inflation is under control. But people think the economy is terrible right now. And that could be a number of things, um, I think, emanating from the COVID pandemic, where there's still a lot of dislocation caused from that. There's still, you know, workplaces have disintegrated. Um, a lot of people just feel a lot less secure, a lot less healthy than they used to. And they just broadly blame that on the economy. Um, and, you know, just instinctively, people sort of blame the party in power. They blame Joe Biden for things just not being great. Um, and that's, you know, that's typical. Like people generally credit presidents for good times, whether or not they created them. They, they blame presidents for bad times whether or not they created them. Um, but Biden is somewhat bearing the brunt of that right now. Now, it's possible we'll see that shift, you know, over the next year um, if the economy continues to grow and unemployment stays low. Um, perhaps people just come to say, oh, actually, things are actually going a little bit better. Uh, but really remarkably right now, it's, uh, you know, a, a lot of surveys reflect what, what you were uh, just saying, that regardless of what things look like and how few people are unemployed and uh, people's mm. income levels, people just generally say things are not great. Um, and uh, they they are blaming the president for it. So just in the last minute, though, Trump is facing four indictments, 91 criminal charges, legal challenge under the 14th Amendment. And of course, he lost the last election, but then he organized a violent attempt to overturn the results. Um, and he's already lost his his reputation as the great businessman in the New York trial, and he's obviously terrified. And he's he wants to, uh, in his next term, if he gets it, uh, go after all the people that served close to him and know what an incredible fool and incompetent he is. But nevertheless, you know, his poll numbers are such that you could just have to ask yourself, what's wrong with the American people? Why can't they see this catastrophe in front of them? I mean, it's, you know, it comes back to sort of a, you know, truism in American politics that elections are about the incumbent. And it's not that people are unaware of what Trump has done and what he's threatening to do and all the trouble he's dealing with now. But they, uh, for the most part, they don't vote on that. They decide whether they like what the incumbent is doing right now uh, and cast a vote on that. And, uh, you know, they'll deal with the, the Trump side of it later. But, you know, what, one of the things that we really saw during Trump's presidency is how little uh, public reaction there was to um, a lot of the things that he was doing daily, how, you know, how multiple impeachments didn't really change public opinion toward him very much, how repeated scandals didn't change much. And even how, you know, we've just seen over the last year how little, uh, you know, four major sets of indictments, uh, how little those actually changed public opinion toward him. They may have even helped him within his own party. So a lot of this is just simply baked in to people's understanding of Trump. Well, Seth Maskett, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for having me on. Good talking to you.
Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Seth Maskett, who is a professor of political science and director of the Center for American Politics at the University of Denver, who studies political parties, campaigns and elections and state legislatures. His books include Learning from Loss, The Democrats 2016 to 2020, and The Inevitable Party, Why Attempts to Kill the Party System Fail and How They Weaken Democracy. And he is currently working on a book project examining the Republican Party's interpretations of the 2020 elections and his preparations for 2024. And he has an op-ed of the Los Angeles Times. Biden is losing to Trump in a new poll. Does that pass the smell test? This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305